This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Klein, and I'm the executive director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And I am here on Zoom with my friend and yours, Mike Yuseem, the uh, esteemed director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management. How are you, Mike? Jeff, I'm doing great. I hope that's true of you, too. Uh, you know, as as I sit here on another Friday, um, I am happy to report um, I'm doing well in the world today. And by the way, it is therapeutic. When you say you're okay, I say I'm okay. We both are more okay as a result. So there it is. I'm okay. You're okay. <laughs> so for our listeners, I want to remind you that new episodes of our show premiere every Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM channel 132. And you can always follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So Mike... Um, I think I'm going to maybe just sidestep a a bit of a tradition of ours, which is usually to engage in, you know, a little pre-show banter before we bring our guest on. And so what I'm going to, but I'm going to ask you to stipulate something for the record. Um, that is we will, we'll forgo the banter, but we'll both agree. It would have been amazing. (laughs) It would, let, let me just say it would have been amazing. All right. Fantastic. So, um, you know, I mean, that that's really the emotional outcome we're always hoping for. Exactly. Right. It's just a little bit of camaraderie, a little bit of connection. But, you know, we were able to achieve it in that way. The mission accomplished. All right. Fantastic. So that means we'll be able to just spend a couple extra minutes uh, today with um, our friend, our colleague, our alum, um, our buddy and the author. He's returning to the show, Dr. David Fagenbaum. How are you today, sir? Doing well. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, you have been with us before, um, and and the story is just an amazing story. Um, your quest to find a cure for a rare a rare condition called Castleman disease, um, and and your quest is is a personal one as well as one on on behalf of. Uh, those afflicted with Castleman disease because it nearly it nearly killed you, right, David? That's right. Even while I was in, in business school uh, doing my MBA, uh, actually for the fifth time, I, I almost died from this disease, Castleman disease. I first became sick while I was a medical student at Penn. And unfortunately, it kept coming back relapse after relapse after relapse. And, and it took doing an MBA and being surrounded by um, uh, colleagues and classmates um, that I was able to eventually um, do the scientific work to find a drug that allows me to sit here talking to you today. I, I found a drug that's been around for 30 years and no one had, had ever tried it for my disease. And um, uh, and, and here I am, it's, it's, it's been seven years since I started myself on that drug. That's amazing. And, and your book, David, which is just a, um, such a compelling read. Um, your book is called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Um, and I think, that the paperback version of that memoir um, has just been released. Am I right? 
That's right. January 26th. Okay. Fantastic. So um, for our listeners, we'll, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk some about the story, but it, but it's described in um, uh, both really gripping detail as really human detail as well within the book. So we'll, um, we'll encourage you all to take a look at that. Um, David, let me just do a little bit of background information about you so that our listeners know a little bit more about you. Um, you are currently an assistant professor of medicine, um, translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania. So that's why I say you are you are a dear colleague um, here at the university. As you noted, you graduated as well with an MBA from the Wharton School, um, and you're the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, right? And Associate Director of Patient Impact for the Orphan Disease Center at Penn. You are one of the youngest people ever elected as a fellow of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, and you are one of three res recipients. Um, and you're in pretty good company there, it looks like, because uh, our President Joe Biden is another of the 2016 Atlas Award from the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia. You're a former Division I college quarterback, a weightlifter, co-founder of a national grief support network, you know, and and obviously who someone who has a lot of spare time, right? <laughs> That's right. It's it's been busy. So, yeah, exactly. So, Mike, um, I want to bring you right in here. Um, I know I, I've had the benefit of of talking with David uh, a couple times, um, including here on the show, uh, but I know that you are. Um, uh, you're interviewing him here for the first time. So why don't why don't we why don't I ask you to get us started in this conversation um, really about David's experience with Castleman um, and the work that he initiated afterwards? Yeah, well, Jeff, thank you, Annette and David. Great to have you on the show. And we do want to talk about COVID-19 that you've been very much involved in and everybody's extremely concerned about at the moment. Come back to that though after we hear a bit more about your own experience. Most people will probably not have even heard of the term Castleman disease. So give us a, a bit of a, uh, an appraisal of what it entailed, um, what you went through. Uh, by the way, you're looking totally great right now. So that cure must have gone a long way that you did uh, develop. But uh, for people unfamiliar with the disease class, just um, fill it in for us and we'll ask a couple more questions. Sure. Th thanks so much, Mike. It, it's really uh, a pleasure to be with you as well. And, and of course, Jeff, Jeff also. So Castleman disease is a, a rare immune system disorder that we actually have a hard time putting it into a specific disease bucket. There are characteristics uh, of Castleman disease that are very similar to autoimmune diseases and characteristics of Castleman disease that are very similar to lymphoma, so cancer of the immune system. Yeah. And so it's it's really, um, and, and you can imagine when you have a disease that's hard to define, that means it's probably also hard to treat, hard to diagnose. Um, the type of Castleman's I have is called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. The term idiopathic means we don't know the cause. And one thing I learned in medical school is you don't don't want to have a disease that has idiopathic in the name of it, because you know it means that we've we've got a long way to go. And so. It's kind of like a cancer, kind of like an autoimmune condition. About a third of patients diagnosed with my disease will die within five years of diagnosis, and another third will die within 10 years of diagnosis. So it's a very serious disease um, that up until about 10 years ago um, had really received very little attention. Great. A couple of side questions, and we'll come back to the main course. I suspect it does fall in the orphan disease category. 
Uh, and again, for uh, listeners, if you could just uh, flesh out what it means to be an orphan disease. That's right. So in the U.S., uh, orphan diseases have anywhere a number less than 200,000 individuals alive with that disease at any one time. So orphan means rare. And the reason that we don't just call them rare diseases and we call them orphan is because they're rare and typically neglected. And so this is one of those 7,000 rare diseases. And I ask that in part because, as I recall, U.S. tax code does give benefits to pharmaceutical companies that will invest in a cure for an orphan disease. There's a tax incentive. Is, is that still correct? That's exactly right. So up until the mid-80s, there was never any interest whatsoever in developing treatments for rare diseases because, as you can imagine, if they're rare, then, then you know, no one can pay the extraordinarily high cost to develop a drug. But thankfully, there, were, there was a bill called the Orphan Drug Act that changed that, and there has been increasingly uh, greater and greater interest in developing rare diseases. Now, that being said, there are 7,000 rare diseases. So we, we're not even close to, to getting, right now there are about 5% of them actually have a treatment. So we have an even longer way to go still. So David, I think you know where I'm going with this. This uh, then comes back to you since <laughs> uh, Big Pharma was probably not making that a priority. And because of the many, many orphan diseases out there, uh, this one may have received very little attention. So talk through with us what you did in response to the fact that you had it and there was no cure for it. So you're exactly right. A rare disease like Castleman's, you have to get very lucky to get to get interest from pharmaceutical companies and a lot of things kind of have to align. So in my case, um, and, I, and I would say that we were fortunate within Castleman disease that there was a drug in development. When I became sick, there was actually a drug undergoing a clinical trial. And as, as we discussed, not all rare diseases have any drugs whatsoever. So we were lucky that there was one drug in development. Unfortunately, that drug didn't work for me. So I was started on the drug after the third time I nearly died. I relapsed on that drug. So I went from being so thankful that there was a drug in development and feeling lucky, frankly, that I had I had one of these rare diseases where someone actually cared to then all of a sudden learning that that drug didn't work for me. So the only thing that could give me hope was no longer something that could help me. And in light of that, just walk through then what you did to seek out your own cure. So the next step for me was, it, it was first, it required a fundamental, just kind of a, a, a shift in my mind from being, I consider myself to be a pretty hopeful person. Um, if I go to the right doctor, I do the right things, the right drug is going to, you know, kind of magically appear. Um, at least that's how it, how it seems. Um, but then I, I went from that sort of mindset to realizing that, okay, I can be hopeful that there might be a drug in my future that could save my life, but I need to also take action today, tomorrow, and the next day and keep taking action to get closer to that which I'm hoping for. And so for me, that was really um, two parallel paths. The first was um, I began conducting laboratory research at the University of Pennsylvania. I was a medical student at the time. So I started working in, in a lab to try to see if I could learn something, anything. And, and frankly, it was unlikely I was, I was going to make progress on my own, but I, I, need, I knew I needed to, needed to do what I could. In parallel, I started a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to bring together physicians, researchers, and patients from around the world to make sure that we were working together in a coordinated fashion. And it, and it was really through the two of those things going, coming together in parallel um, that we were able to make the progress we did. Great. Uh, why don't we come back for this in a few minutes, but let me bring Jeff back in. Jeff. Thank you, Mike. Um, 
First off, I'll remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Mike Yusim, and our guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's leading what is called the Corona Project, which seeks to identify and track treatments for COVID-19. He's also the author of a memoir called Chasing My Cure, which has just been released in paperback. And we are catching up with David um, on the work he did around Castleman disease and the Castleman disease collaborative network, um, which has led to uh, the work around the Corona project, which we will also get into today. So, you know, David, why, um, if you would, I mean, one, one reaction is, um, you know, a pretty normal reaction, which is, all right, let me roll up my sleeves, let me get in the lab, let me figure out what can be done about this. Um, what led you to, at the same time, establish this collaborative network? Um, and, and why aren't there more of them? These are good questions. I think for me, I was fortunate because I was already in the medical system. I was a medical student, so I could kind of see things that maybe if I wasn't a medical student, I wouldn't have seen. And what I was seeing was that people were doing things, but it was totally uncoordinated. I was seeing that some people were duplicating others' efforts. I was finding that people would do work and they wouldn't share it with other people. And these are kind of fundamental, like organizational things that um, that, that just need to happen for, for entities to function appropriately, for, for things to happen. And they weren't happening for Castleman disease. And so um, to me, it became very clear that okay, I can do all the science I want in the lab. And, and frankly, I was very you know, novice and green at the time. And so who knows if I ever would have made any progress. But, but if people aren't sharing data, if people are, are just duplicating others' efforts, and if this isn't coordinated, then we're never going to make enough progress in time to save my life or all the other people with Castleman disease that, that are battling right now. And so it, it just was very clear that we needed this organizational effort and we needed to really change um, the way that research was done. And, and early on, and our, I think our scope kind of grew more and more, but early on it was, wow, Castleman's, our field is very inefficient. Let's make it more efficient. And then all of a sudden I started looking at other fields kind of on the left and the right of me and saying, wait a minute, biomedical research is quite inefficient. We can't just get Castleman disease to be kind of up to speed with everyone else. We might need to actually change the way that you do it. And um, because Castleman's had so few players and so little interest, um, that actually maybe made it a little bit easier for us to kind of um, uh, take on a new path because if there were a bunch of existing players and a bunch of money and a bunch of uh, entities, it would have probably been hard to do that. But because so little existed, we we decided to, t to forge this new path where rather than the traditional approach in, in research where groups like ours raise money and then we invite researchers to apply for our money through requests for proposals, we said, let's not do that. Because if you do that, you're just basically hoping that someone somewhere will have a good idea and that they'll actually apply for it and they'll have the skill sets to do it. We said, what if we actually turn to physicians and researchers and patients around the world to figure out what should be done? And then once we figure out what we should be should do, let's go find out who the best person in the world is to actually go do it. And so, and so we did that. We crowdsourced all these ideas. We went out and we recruited the best people to do it. And we've made so much progress. And when I tell people about how we did it, and I talk about this a lot in the book, 
people are like, well, that sounds so simple. Like, why doesn't everyone do it? And, and, and I say, you're exactly right. It didn't, it didn't take any level of rocket science, um, but it's just matching good ideas to the best scientists instead of hoping and waiting. And I, and I love that this is leadership in action because it's all about action. I mean, you can't lead without action. You can't lead. I mean, I guess you can be a thought leader for sure, but let's hope that that thought leadership turns into action, right? And David, as you're taking on this approach, um, you know, is, is there is there a moment, a response you got from one of the patients, one of the other researchers, where where you said, "Wow, I, okay, like this thing might work," right? <laughs> yes, I, I th there there were a number of moments like that. I think that, in particular what was surprising early on was the amount of resistance that there was to it. So early on, there weren't a lot of wins. There was a lot of resistance to the concept. And so, so I think early on, I probably didn't think this is actually going to work. I think a lot of the time it was, oh my gosh, this is not going to work um, because there is so much resistance. Um, but there was a turning point, And that was when what I found was that there had to be almost like there was a critical mass that we had to get to, or we had to get enough people in the field to buy into it. And once that critical mass was on board, Everyone else kind of jumped in, but we needed to get those handful of really key experts on board. And when we did that, and when I started seeing all of these research ideas, we got over 60 different research ideas when we did this effort to get people's ideas for what we should study. And, and all of a sudden we went from the typical, pr previously in Castleman disease, there were two or three researchers that would apply for a grant every year. And those two to three researchers weren't making any progress. And all of a sudden go from two to three to over 60 ideas. That, that was the moment for me. It was, oh my gosh, th this could work. And these ideas are actually going to turn into therapies that are going to save people's lives. Now, David, I, I want to, you know, we, we've had a number of conversations, you know, about your journey. Um, and, and one of the things I've always appreciated is, is just your, your bravery and your willingness to, to speak about, you know, hard emotional journeys here. Um, you know, in, in the span of about three and a half years, if I'm right, um, you were read your last rites. You suffered four deadly relapses. Um, and then you, you know, identified an exploratory treatment that you've been a part of for, you know, a, a more than five years now. Um, you married your college sweetheart. That's right. You had a baby girl. I mean, there's, there's so much happening and, and like the, the question I always come back to, and I know I've asked you before, but I just love the conversation is, where did you find the strength? It's it's a good question. I think for me, um, it, it's from a few places. The first is the the people that you mentioned. So so my, my wife, Caitlin, my dad, my sisters, my friends, uh, they, they provided so much strength. I think that when you're really struggling, um, leaning on the people you love, I think is is really essential. I mean, I I, I was almost literally um, you know, leaning on their energy as I laid in the ICU, just seeing them next to me, I could, I could, it, it made me want to keep fighting. I mean, it really, okay, each breath is painful, but you know, my two sisters here, if I can keep fighting, like, you know, they'll be, you know, I, I can protect them from, 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 you know, some, from some, some amount of suffering if I can just keep fighting. And so I think physically and, and literally there's a strength from leaning on the people you love. I think that 
There's a few other things that, and, I, and I've thought about this a lot. And, I, and actually, I'm, I'm really happy I wrote Chasing My Cure, not just because it's it's been a message that other people can lean on, but also it helped me to kind of figure out kind of how all this stuff fits together personally for me. And I think, so I think one part is leaning on the people you love. For me, the second thing that helped me get through tough times was being able to look towards um, a future that that I was hoping for. And so at different times it was, I want to get married to Caitlin. I want to, I just want to make it six more months so I can get married to her. And maybe one day we could have a family together, but, but having that thing in the future that I was working towards was essential. I mean, when I was suffering in the hospital, I had to have something I was looking towards. And then the third piece, which we talked about earlier is, okay, I've got the people around me. I've got this vision for the future, but I can't keep my eye on that prize. I need to focus on every day, one at a time. And I, I think it's a cliche because it's true that, you know, you should, you should really, you know, take it one day at a time. And so those three things for me um, really came together at my lowest points. And I think even now at, at you know, higher points where I'm, I'm doing well, I still focus on those three things. It's the people you love, it's the vision for the future, but then it's what can I do today, tomorrow, and the next day. Thank you, David. And, and, um, you know, your memoir is called Chasing My Cure. Uh, We're talking here with Dr. David Fagenbaum um, about both the work that he has done uh, in in identifying uh, treatments for Castleman disease, um, as well as some of the work that he is now initiating as part of the Corona Project, seeking to identify and track treatments for COVID-19. Mike, we have uh, we have four or five minutes before we take a, a quick break. So why don't I give this back to you for uh, the last part of the segment? Yeah. Uh, well, David, to be very brief here, thinking about what you have done, and I think a similar set of developments have occurred around ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, where many individuals have stepped forward, organized medicine, of course, but also many individuals. And thinking about your own experience with uh, Kalsamans and what you've seen over at ALS, is this a, um, I don't know, an agenda or a purpose or cause that we ought to more often embrace in, in, in medicine in the US or maybe even globally? And that is for individuals like yourself uh, to step forward, not wait for cures coming down from big pharma and so on. So anyway, to what extent is this is a model that we could roll out beyond Castleman's? I really believe it is. Um, you mentioned the ALS field and and, and what uh, an incredible field and what incredible uh, leaders and warriors um, within the ALS field that, as you said, have, have stepped up and have um, have you know advocated for new treatments and have really raised literally tens and even hundreds of millions of dollars. And 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 so I think that um, and. and ALS and Castleman's are certainly not the only examples. There are there are so many out there, and I think that it you're you're right. I think that there is we're maybe at a, a turning point or, or or an inflection point where um, there are so many advocates out there who are saying I, I'm tired of waiting. Um, so so one part is I'm tired of waiting, and the second part is and I've seen it done for other diseases because you know if you are in a tough situation and you've never seen someone get out of it. You, you really don't think it's probably even possible. But when you're in a tough situation and you've seen someone get out of your tough situation, you can think about this well beyond medicine. You can think about it 
um, in, in social life and in, in, in politics, you know, people who can you, who can be representative of you, someone who looks like you, or someone in your situation can all of a sudden achieve something that that you didn't think was possible. Now you all of a sudden have hope that maybe you can achieve that thing. And so, um, so as a result of some success stories like cystic fibrosis is a great success story, Castleman's in our case mm-hmm. is a success story. I think that people are, are wanting to keep wanting to you know to really push forward. And, um, and we've actually through the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network have been partnering with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan's effort to try to, to, to push forward social causes, one of which is rare disease. Yep, great. Uh, just with maybe uh, one minute to go, uh, this is leadership in action. And maybe at the, at, the, at the core of what you've just said is the fact that people like yourself and many, many others have uh, simply decided to step forward and make a difference and take it on. So is that a fair summary of, of what these rare diseases now ought to have more of? That's exactly right. And I think that for, for so long, patients like me, we felt that um, we were kind of um, supportive of people fighting for a cure. You know, we can give our samples, we can raise some money, give our data. But now I think we're realizing that we can actually be the quarterbacks. We can help to coordinate, organize, and really push things forward. Great. You know, David, one of the things I'm, I'm always struck by when, when I think about your work um, is you know in the in the academic literature around things like collective action and collective impact, um, it's often identified that these sort of collaborative networks they need what gets described as a, a backbone organization, right? They need a a place that can serve as a center or a hub within a network to make sure that all the other parts are communicating. Um, and, and I wonder if you could tell us, you know, first about how you develop those skills as part of the, the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, and then about your decision to try to apply those skills and that experience um, uh, to the Corona Project. Sure. You are absolutely correct. It has been essential to to have the CDCN, which is the Castle Disease Collaborative Network, serve as an intermediary and and a coordinator among many people that were out there doing work. And it's kind of, it's almost hard to imagine that there's so many people doing work separately, but they're not speaking with one another and they're not sharing what they're doing. And so as a result, there's sometimes duplication of effort. Sometimes there's glaring omissions that just no one's doing any work, but they don't realize how glaring it is because they're just focused on on their work. And, um, and then, and then frankly, there's just, you know, you're not necessarily matching the, the most qualified people to do work. So there's, there's a lot of problems within, at least within the Castleman space. And certainly we've, we've uncovered in other rare diseases. And, and we found that some of the ways that we can solve those problems, the first is through really clear transparency. So we have a website, which we call our research pipeline, where it just lists every researcher in the world that's doing anything and what they're doing in an organized way. I mean, I feel like you should be able to go to one place in the internet and know what everyone's doing and where they are and how to contact them. And then if you're a new researcher, you can see, well, where are the gaps or who are the people I want to work with? Where are the places I want to go? And that just feels so fundamental. I mean, I can't imagine any other industry in the world where you wouldn't want to know what your landscape is before you know you dive in head first. And so, so transparency, I think, is one critical component of this. Um, but then it's not just saying, okay, well, this person's there, that person's there. Let's just put it on a map, which is that first step. It's also 
connecting those people so that this person here and that person there on the map actually start sharing information with one another so that the person over here, um, that their, their work can be improved by the data that someone else is generating. And so it's, it's transparency, it's coordination. And it's also what I think a, a third part, which I think you certainly would recognize is that it's about having a vision for, for where we're all going towards. So it's not just one person going in one direction, another person going in another direction, but it's it's saying, okay, you know, you, you're doing really important work, but this is our vision. This is what we all need to work towards. And, um, and it can't be something set by one person, by me or by anyone else. It's got to be set by a collective group. And so our scientific advisory board sets that vision. Um, and I think the combination of vision, transparency, and coordination um, makes this whole thing work. So, you know, as the world has been now embroiled um, over this past year, I mean, I, I think we've, we've just gotten past the, the patient zero diagnosis, right? Um, yep. How have you been drawn into the work around coronavirus and, and COVID-19? Yeah, so you probably remember um, March, Friday, the 13th of March, um, which was the day that that the US shut down. And um, I was uh, actually in my car with my, my wife and, and our two-year-old daughter. Um, we were traveling down to North Carolina, um, actually have uh, my, my brother-in-law had ALS. And, and so the, we spoke about ALS before and, and, and we really wanted to see him and my sister um, because we knew this shutdown was happening. We wanted to visit them um, because Chris wasn't doing well. And as I was driving down that night, um, I remembered hearing these, I was listening to the, to the numbers, uh, the cases and, and what was going on with COVID. And I found myself hoping that someone somewhere would find treatments for, for COVID. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, they need to have experience studying cytokine storms. They need to have experience doing drug repurposing and they need to, you know, make sure that they're tracking drugs that are working, drugs that aren't working. And I thought to myself, what they need to do is really what we did for Castleman disease. And, and I really hope someone does that. And then, uh, you know, about 10 seconds later, I was like, well, wait a minute. I, I'm hoping that someone somewhere does what we've been doing for the last eight years. And like, I'm alive right now because of these things. And there's something I could do about this terrible pandemic. Um, and so about, you know, like I said, about a minute later, I snapped out of it and realized, well, well maybe we should do something. And um, I don't know if you remember, um, this is back in March, but there was a this uh, meme with Big Bird. I don't know if you saw it. It said, um, it said, we ride at dawn. And it was like, it was like, it was like someone like riding behind Big Bird. And it was this, you know, basically this meme saying like, you know, we're in, you know, we're all in. And so anyway, I sent it to my team that night. And I said, I said, we're going after COVID. We ride at dawn. And, um, and so, and, and there was just uniform. Our team said, we're in, you know, it was, you know, everyone said, let's do it. And um, that was the start of, of the Corona Project, um, which is an effort to collect data on every treatment being used worldwide for COVID-19. And early on, we thought that might be a couple dozen drugs. You know, people are going to be enthusiastic to try things. I'm sure, you know, we need to do this because there might be a couple dozen drugs. Jeff, there have been over 400 different drugs that have already been given to COVID patients in the last year because everyone's trying anything they can get their hands on. And so what Corona does is it, it tracks what's being given. Does it seem to be working? Does it not seem to be working? Is there a clinical trial in place? No trial in place. Just to try to get all that information. We said before, transparency, getting it all in one place so that we're all working off the same information. So... Um... 
Well, actually, let me let me remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeff Klein, and our guest today is Dr. David Fagenbaum, who is the author of a memoir called Chasing My Cure, just released in paperback, and he's currently leading, and we're starting to talk now about the Corona Project, which seeks to identify and track treatments for COVID-19. Um, so David, I'm gonna ask you this question, and then I'll, I'll um, give the baton back to Mike here for a while. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really struck by this image of we ride at dawn. Um, and, and you said you sent that to your team. And would, would you spend a minute and tell us about your team? Who Who's on this journey with you? Absolutely. And um, I think it's so important we get into my team because my book is called Chasing My Cure. And that gives a sense that it's like me looking after my, and, and it's absolutely not been it's been it should be chasing our cure or our cures because it really has been a team effort and so I, I run a center at Penn where we're focused on basically when the immune system gets out of control how do you stop it in Castleman's and in other conditions like COVID now and um, so I've got a 15 member team at Penn that is fully focused on working in the lab also so wet lab like you think about but also computational lab as well um, and then separate from our team at Penn there is a whole army of volunteers who are part of the Castle Disease Collaborative Network that I mentioned. So physicians that are on our scientific advisory board, parents of patients, patients that, that donate their time to try to push forward the CDCN. And so um, I, I feel so fortunate. I've just got the most incredible team um, that I get a chance to, to work with every day. And um, yeah, we, we would have made about one one thousandth of the progress if it was me working on my own. I know I know you know this all too well. Mike. Yeah, David, just to stay on that for a minute, I'm really intrigued by the underlying fact that you began with nothing, you built a network, you built a team, you built a cause, and then done it a second time as well. And for people who are not in medicine, I'm thinking, uh, what is the underlying formula for this to happen? So let me throw out a couple hypotheses, so to speak, Please. have you build on it. First of all, it takes a person like you who is zealous about the need for personal reasons or maybe intellectual reasons uh, to get on with life and solve the big problem. But you've also said it's taken an extraordinary team. You had to build out the team. You had to raise a lot of cash. I know you've done that as well. So for those who are not in medicine, or maybe even those who are in medicine, who would like to take on something like this on their own from scratch, what's the formula? Yeah, I, you're you're really spot on. I mean, I would probably I would probably boil it down to three things. Um, you need a problem that is so important, or at least it's so important to you that you're gonna you're literally gonna run to the end of the earth to, to take this thing down. So, I mean, I, I couldn't have done either of these things if I didn't in my bones want to solve these problems. And so I think, I think one, it has to be a problem that, that really um, is something that needs to be fixed, or at least you personally think it badly needs to be fixed. I think the second piece is that you need to have that vision for what fixed means, you know, what is it? Cause there's a lot of, you know, when someone's diagnosed with Castleman disease or you think about taking on Castleman's or COVID, there's a lot of angles you can go a lot. You can go the testing route, the diagnosis route there's, but, but what is that? What is the thing that you and your effort is going to go for? And for us, for both of them, it's been treatments. It hasn't been vaccines. It hasn't been diagnostic. It's been treatments. Someone has the disease, they're going to die. How are you going to stop it? Um, and then I think the third piece of it 
is having very clear and, and this this isn't always the easiest um, thing to do, but it's from that big vision. It's trying to come up with what are the clear positions and projects that you need to populate in order to get to that vision. Because if you can have a big problem, set a clear vision, you're going to then have people interested in being a part of your movement and your effort, but you need to have very clear and well-defined projects and positions that those people can, can go into. And so I think the third part is probably the hardest one. Um, and, 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 but if you can, and for Corona, um, for the Corona project, we defined a number of positions that we, we needed. And you may be just surprised or, or maybe not surprised, but we literally have had over 90 people in the last year volunteer for that project. Over 90 different people. Most of them are medical students at Penn and other med schools, but who came to us and said, we heard about what you're doing. I want to do it. I, like I'm in. What What do you need me to do? And so we said, well, there are all these reports. Like, will you just read through thousands and thousands of pages of records? Sure, you know, bring it on. And, and so this is what we've done. But I think that, yep. you know, we we had the, we had a, a problem that we all agree needs to be solved. We had a vision for what we wanted, which is figuring out what drugs save patients' lives. And then third, we had slots where we said, yeah, if you come to us, we're going to give you this. It's not going to be easy, but we could really use your help. And then, David, on the flip side, having gone through this the first time around Castleman's, you probably discovered a couple of dead ends along the way. And uh, Jeff and I, when we get going on new agendas, uh, new ventures, and so on, uh, we'll, we're always doing after-action reviews, what worked, but a few things don't work. So looking back on either that or what you're doing now in COVID, are there a couple of things you'd warn people uh, off of that looked promising but didn't turn out to be so? Absolutely. I, I think about this, and, and sometimes when I talk to students, it's something that I, um, I, I discuss with them, and that's that um, I, I've run into a lot of dead ends with, with both of these efforts. And um, uh, one example would be with the, the Corona Project. We um, initially set out to collect as much data as we possibly could on each patient that came in, um, in into the uh, database. And we did that for the first 9,000 patients. But by the time we did our analysis of the first 9,000, we realized that there was so much heterogeneity and differences patient to patient that even though we collected all of this data on all 9,000 patients, it still was basically almost impossible to compare drugs between patients. And we realized that um, we realized that we should collect less data per patient, but we should try to get more patients in. So it was a, it was a, it was a distinction between depth and breadth. We needed breadth. We needed we didn't need depth. And so you could argue that we went down a real rabbit hole for that first month by getting a lot of depth of data when really what we needed was breadth. So that was a mistake. But what I would say, um, and, and there have been many mistakes, um, but what I would say is that we ran so hard in that direction that we learned how to run and we, we figured out and we got good at running, right? And so even though we might have run into a, a dead end, we got faster and stronger and more endurance. So that way, when we figured out the direction we needed to go, we, yeah. we, we could. And so I, I, and I'm sure that you go into this with, with, your, with um, other guests in the show that, that you learn from your mistakes, but it's not just learning from them. I think it's also you, you, you trained in, in making that mistake. You, you got better at doing um, so then you can take on what you need to. Very helpful. Jeff, back to you. Thanks, Mike. Um, I'll remind our listeners, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I am Jeff Klein, and I'm here with Mike Yuseem. We're talking with Dr. David Fagenbaum, whose book, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action, 
is a memoir um, and a recounting of the effort he led to find a cure for a rare condition called Castleman disease, which nearly killed him. That work led David uh, to initiate the Corona Project, uh, which is tracking and cataloging the treatments being used uh, to uh, assist those who are suffering from COVID-19. And, and so David, I, I'm sure our listeners are um, really curious about the work. And, and I wonder if there are any um, early insights or early conclusions that you could share with them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, first off, listeners can actually get into the data and play with it. It's at cdcn.org slash corona. Um, you can actually go in, you can work with, with, with the data and, and look at it yourself. Um, but some of the, the really key early insights that, that I would mention, the first is around the sheer number of, of drugs that have been tried in patients. It's really pretty remarkable. There are somewhere around 3,000 drugs the FDA has ever approved. And to think that 400 of them, so more than 10% of all drugs ever approved for anything have already been given to COVID patients, just tells you that like us doctors and scientists are just trying anything we can. Um, and, and that's great to try things, but but boy, do you need to track whether they're working or not so that way you can learn from it, right? And so that's what Corona is doing. It's, okay, there's a, a, a massive amount of, of testing, but let's track it. And so, um, so, so we are doing that, we are tracking. Um, a few key insights um, that I don't think we necessarily anticipated um, going into this. The, the first is that Timing really matters when it comes to treatments. So patients that are newly diagnosed with, with SARS-CoV-2 infection, what we call COVID, um, as you know, one of the problems is that they're often asymptomatic for about five days after they're infected. And the reason that's a problem is because then they spread the virus to someone else and to a lot of other people during those five days. Well, the reason that they're asymptomatic is actually because the virus is quite good at preventing the immune response or the immune system from recognizing it and fighting it. Because once your immune system starts fighting a virus, that's when you start feeling unwell. And so basically the fact that we feel fine for five days with the virus reflects the fact that the virus is basically evading your immune system for five days. So by the time your immune system finally sees it, it goes into overdrive to try to get rid of it. It's like, oh my gosh, I've been woken up from this slumber and now I got to get into action mode. And in doing so, it then has too strong of an immune response. So it's like the pendulum swings from being too weak to start to in the sickest patients, the patients that die from COVID, they don't die from the virus. They die because their immune system has become so activated in trying to take back control over the virus that it's the immune system damages the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, and the brain, and, and you die. And so um, what this highlights is that drugs that boost the immune response would be helpful early, but they would be harmful if you give it to someone late in their disease course and vice versa. Drugs that suppress the response early would actually be harmful and be helpful late. Conceptually, it makes sense, but we didn't know that before this project. And our data has shown that that's the case, that drugs that help you late actually worse. You would think, oh, this drug saves lives if you're in ICU. We should just give it to everyone right now. Well, actually, no. If you take it before you're in the ICU, you're actually likely to have a worse outcome. And so this sort of concept of timing matters, um, that the disease is a lot more complicated than we'd hoped for, um, I, I think is really, really uh, one, of the, one of the big takeaways. Wow, David, thank you um, for, for that description, that explanation. Um, and, and so probably the, the next question in my mind is uh, 
we we will have to I could always talk to you for like three or four hours. We will have to wrap the, the conversation up uh, uh, in the next little while here. But when when an insight like that, uh, that what you just described about about the timing and the efficacy of different uh, treatments, uh, especially in relation to the immune system, when you can arrive at, at such a conclusion, um, what do you then do with it so that it promulgates throughout the medical community? So the traditional um, approach is to is to write a, a, an article, a, a medical journal article, um, either using primary data that's from your lab or just summarize in a review article. And so, um, so I, I got the chance to do that. I wrote a review article um, with uh, Dr. Carl June, who's a colleague at Penn in the New England Journal of Medicine, which was kind of the ultimate way to get this message out about cytokine storms. Um, uh, so that came out in December, and that was really critical for us to say. A, what's going on with cytokine storms generally, but within COVID, you know, let's let's give the kind of the latest greatest info on COVID cytokine storms. So that was the first step. The other is that we, um, I feel so fortunate, have been able to work really closely with the FDA, and there are a number of folks at the FDA, um, Heather Stone, Leonard Sachs in particular, that are really really. Um, excited about and they recognize the importance and the potential for drug repurposing, you know, taking a drug approved for one thing and trying it for another thing. And so we have a, a, the opportunity when we find things like this to, to connect with folks from the FDA and they're really receptive to it. And that's just not the way it always is and not the way it, it's really always has been, frankly. And so, you know, it, it's not just all us, all of us in the public that are hoping for treatments and progress for COVID, everyone in this in this world wants it. And I, there's been really incredible collaboration in ways that I've never seen before. David, um, it, as always, uh, has just been a, a fascinating conversation. Um, I want to offer my thanks on behalf of Mike and and another um, dear colleague of yours, Dr. Ann Greenhall, who couldn't be with yes. us here today, but but absolutely sends um, her greetings and, and her love your way. Um, you know, thanks for being with us. Thanks for the conversation. More importantly, um, thanks for the work that you continue to lead um, and the impact that that you are clearly dedicated to having in the world. Um, if our you mentioned a little bit about this, but but I w I want to make sure I ask the question. If our listeners want to learn more about what you're doing. Um, you know, clearly uh, the paperback version of the memoir has just come out, Chasing My Cure. Um, but how, how, can they, how can they connect into your work? Sure, so they can go to cdcn.org slash corona and they can access this data set that's growing daily, um, hourly even. Um, so they can access that data there. They can learn a little bit more about the work that we're doing and, and our vision even beyond Castleman's and beyond COVID for drug repurposing at chasingmycure.com. Um, we talk quite a bit about how, um, as we said earlier, it's not just chasing my cure, but chasing our cures. How can we think about all of the drugs that are already FDA approved for something that might be able to be used in, an, in a new way? And just this concept of repurposing is something that I think is so important in medicine. And so we'd be thrilled for you to check that out. Um, Check out, as you said, Chasing My Cure, learn about the, the work that we're doing, um, and, and maybe uh, the data set can be helpful for you in some way. All right. Thank you, David. And so, Mike, it is our tradition, um, and you only get to pick one thing. You can't pick all the things. 
Um, it is our tradition to do our own little brief after action review. And so is, is there a, a message um, or a lesson that, that you wanna highlight? Yeah, well, very much so. And uh, David in a sense has almost been the perfect guest for leadership in action. And that the very premise of this program is that by thinking about leadership, how you can make a difference, you, you indeed can make a difference. Uh, for that, we have to be self-starters. So leadership in action means learning about it and then doing something with it. And I think David's tale is uh, uh, quite uh, astonishing in that um, uh, suffering from uh, Castleman's disease, uh, nearly fatal, he... Uh, <laughs> probably complained a couple of days about his condition, but he said, look, I'm gonna do something about this. And he did. And he's built a model out of that that I think um, all of us are gonna be benefiting from. Uh, build a team, get onto things that are vital and do it now. Jeff, back to you. All right. Thank you, Mike. Um, and yeah, I'm, you know, so many lessons to take from these conversations. Uh, I, I think a broad one for me is the notion when You've identified an important problem, you have a vision for a solution, and you're able to create and communicate a clear set of priorities, a clear set of projects and roles, that that really is the way to translate intention into action. Uh, and so I appreciate you demonstrating that for us here today, David. Um, wow, so for our listeners, thank you also for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at SXM Business. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 